welcome to episode 47 of the Improvised Music Agenda podcast. Who we hear back there is our guest this time, Brian Crock. Let's have a listen. So, thanks for tuning in again, and if you're a first-time listener, welcome to the show. Yeah, so how are you all doing? Hope you're all keeping okay, despite the whole, um, everything that's kicking off for the moment with the virus and the news, and yeah, so I'm recording this on the 7th of January, and yeah, so we're only a week into 2021. (laughs) There's a lot of bad stuff that's happened. But anyway, I won't dwell on that. Uh yeah, so happy new year everyone. Uh yes. And yeah, so because we're in another lockdown type situation, uh yeah, so there's more time to kind of uh focus on musicy bits and the podcast as well. Uh yeah, so I will be doing a video version of this podcast as well because we did this over Zoom, so I pressed record and I thought yeah, it'd be a good idea to do this, especially since uh, Brian is very active on YouTube. Uh, yeah, so I thought it'd be nice to have a visual version of this. Right, so if you don't know about our guest this week, it is Brian Crock, who is a woodwind player and composer, and also, as I just mentioned, a YouTuber as of recent times. Yeah, so he's got a lot of great things out. So he's got a couple of projects which we've mentioned, Little and Big Heart Machine. And yeah, and his YouTube channel. Uh, yeah, and he's got a Patreon as well. So uh, you should sign up to that because there's a lot of great stuff on there. Uh, he's very active and a lot of great rewards. And talking of Patreon, uh, <clears throat> you can you can give money to me as well if you want which would be absolutely great, especially at the moment, because we are losing a bit more work again. (laughs) But yeah, but if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, do feel free to give to the Patreon. Uh, Obviously, no worries if not. It's always free to enjoy. Uh, Yeah, so I'm trying to think of any other news other than that, really. Yeah, not much to report, unfortunately. But anyway, less of me talking... uh, yeah, let's listen to the conversation with Brian Crock. Enjoy. I thought I'd start asking about the YouTube channel and kind of how how you you kind of got into that because that's like in the last year or so you've been getting that up and running. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, man, I just I started the YouTube channel. Uh, for those of your listeners who don't know, it's called Score Study. And, uh, it, it's just a, a series of videos where I, uh, take it like a really deep dive into some of my favorite scores, um, of all time. So yeah, I, I started the, the YouTube channel immediately after the pandemic hit the U S, uh, because I, uh, I had been working, uh, I was subbing on this Broadway show um, called the book of Mormon in March. And we were all speculating what's going to go on, what's going to happen when the pandemic hits. We were all so stupid and naive because we had no idea, uh, the severity of it. And, uh, so we were working right up until, uh, you know, the quarantine orders 
hit and unfortunately I got sick. Uh, so I'm sure it was because I was just out every day, um, you know, playing in a musical pit with, I, I don't know how many other 10 or 11 other people. So, um, so I was, you know, bedridden for, I got really sick and it turned out to be coronavirus. And oh, then, wow. uh, so I was bedridden for like a couple weeks, maybe almost three weeks actually. And I got just in this really dark, depressed zone. Um, because I saw, you know, I had a, a couple tours scheduled. I was supposed to be going to Japan and going to Europe and, um, and, and then also I had a, just a bunch of other work here in town. All of it got canceled. Um, and I was feeling just useless, you know, um, I, I was just laying on the couch all day feeling ill with my fiance taking care of me. And when I emerged from that period, I just realized like this is going to be really long <laughs> and mm. I need to do, I need to do something rather than doing nothing. So um, I happen to be friends with a couple people who have had lots of success in their, you know, uh, artistic careers because of their engagement with so like social media. And I've always sort of been, uh, I think too lax with the social media stuff. Um, I, the, the sort of world that I uh, am a part of here in Brooklyn is really about music first and foremost. And so a lot of my peers and I never really took, um, you know, hustling on social media very seriously. But uh, in particular, one of my good friends from college it's this guy Adam Neely who um, mm. who uh, has had like a profound level of success because of YouTube. So I asked him for advice, and I just decided, you know what, I'm gonna give this a try uh, and see if I. I sort of felt like I have something unique that uh, that isn't really on YouTube. I, you know, I, I. The funny thing is, I also didn't ever watch YouTube until I got oh, sick, right. and then I. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I never was a YouTube person, you know, I, I, I just uh, pretty much read and listened to music and stuff. But when I was like sick on the couch for, you know, all day, every day, I got went into these deep YouTube holes. And, and I realized like, this is pretty cool. Like I was, I was looking at people like um, the a couple channels that were big inspirations for me were like this guy H bomber guy, his name's Harrison. Oh, okay. Uh, Harrison something he goes by H bomber guy and he talks about video games. Um, and I also really got into philosophy tube, which is a channel about philosophy. I got really into this French composer, uh, and now I'm blanking on his name. Uh, but I realized that there's like really deep, serious scholarship happening on YouTube mm, in the form of these like long form essays, basically like video essays, you know? Um, and so I thought, you know, I could do something like this with music, like just do like really, really deep and, uh, and good information and, uh, and long form sort of things. Um, so that, you know, I've just been trying it out. The tough thing is going to be keeping it going when my career, when my performing and composing career starts up again, because like all the gigs I had this year have been rescheduled for 
2021. So it's looking if unless things go really poorly here in the States, which, uh, you know, they definitely could, (laughs) um, uh, you know, it's going to be a busy year and I want to keep making these videos, but dude, they take so much time to make. Dude, that, that, that's <laughs> so. the next thing I was going to ask you. Like, I mean, the editing must be the laborious thing. I don't, I'm yeah, just amazed. You, you kind of, there's one every other week is like, fuck, this guy's like on the case. It's just, I've, I fell in love with editing, man. I really did. But also, you know, I, I, I have a, a lot of anxiety and uh, in the way I have always sort of tended to uh, deal with it is through like um, getting lost in work, you know, it's might, might not be the healthiest uh, thing, but so, uh, you know, it's been a way of like combating anxiety for me, just getting sort of, it's such a repetitive sort of menial task, video editing, you know, you're just mm. sitting at your computer, like, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, for eight hours in a row or whatever i sort of dig that stuff because i just like you lose track of time it's really like um detail oriented and it just sort of i just fell in love with it it sort of jibes with who i am as a person i i like doing that kind of stuff um so now like what i'm thinking about is like you know and another unintended consequence of learning video editing is that i now do that for the Brooklyn Conservatory of Music, which is in my neighborhood. Um, They hired me to do their video editing. So that's been a cool, like, new side hustle or whatever. But now, like, what I'm trying to think of is, like, how can I use the new parameters and set of skills that I've acquired from video editing and and use them as inspiration in my writing? because I've just sort of like started thinking differently about form and, uh, and you know, all the different parameters that are available to you inside of a video editing software, which are, are, you know, very different from, uh, music notation software or digital audio workstations. Mm. So, um, So I've been thinking a lot recently about how I could use these new, like, skills in my music. I'm not sure, though, you know, I'm I'm just sort of brainstorming right now. Oh, great. Cool. But, um, yeah, but, dude, I I love how, like, varied it is as well, like, the channel, like, um, yeah, but I just love the idea that Stairway to Heaven, the recorder bits are in there, (laughs) as well as, like, Braxton is, like, it's kind of... Yeah, dude. I I feel like it's made for me, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, man. A lot of people say that. Um, And I think, like, what the, you know, it's, like, one thing that's tough about, like, becoming a musician uh, or sort of, like, deciding that you're going to pursue music professionally is that at, at every juncture... Uh, outside stimuli are are encouraging you to specialize to sort of brand yourself as one thing and i think what i'm finding is that like we're all so many different things like and there's no reason i'm like done being embarrassed about my influences like i you know i don't there's no reason why i can't love uh, Braxton or Ornette Coleman or Charlie Parker and also love, uh, you know, like 
uh, Led Zeppelin or, um, you know, Dream Theater for that matter, or Metallica or whatever, you know, I still, you know, all of that music um, is important to me. It might not be as, uh, you know, it might confuse people, uh, you know, when they stumble on my channel, because, you know, from one video to the next, I'm talking about film scores, and then I'm talking about technical death metal that I'm talking about like avant-garde improvised music or, you know, um, but to me, they all are special. They all excite me. And, uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm just sort of like, I'm done, uh, trying to be one thing, you know, I've just had so many people in the industry, especially tell me like, you know, what are you? Are you a big band composer? Are you a saxophone player? Are you a woodwind doubler? Like what, you know, it's like people really need to categorize and really need to like pigeonhole in order. I mean, it's a, it's a function of um, understanding such, so much information that you just sort of like the human brain just immediately compartmentalizes and puts things in boxes. Yeah, um, but so, so true. You know? so, yeah. Definitely, I found that it's like it's weird. Like even like listening to I don't know. Like uh, I was like last year, like got into like a bit of like gorgets or something, you know. Like and and how that has the same feeling as listening to I don't know, like some string quartet by Bartok or you know, it's like yeah, super there's similar so much, vibe. You know? There's so much prejudice that that we have that we don't even acknowledge. You know, like what like the guys in Gorguts are absolute geniuses, man. They're doing something, uh, you know, that's completely true to their artistic integrity. They're doing it at the highest level. And, uh, and yet they're never going to be like, you know, I'm sure they're happy with, with their world and their success, but, uh, or another guy I always think of is Devin Townsend. Or or Stephen Wilson, you know these sort of prog rock guys yeah. of the modern day. Um, you know, or there's just there's just so many great artists that uh, because they're 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 in a genre that we don't consider like highfalutin like jazz or classical music. That, but there's there's absolutely nothing uh, that's you know present in the music that makes it less valuable. And, uh, and if there's one thing that's important to me, especially as I get older, and I'm sure you can relate to this, it's, um, it's not being, not like falling asleep, you know, I, I don't want to, I want to always be searching for new things and always have an open mind Mm. and, uh, and look for what you can learn from anything. So, yeah. And then, you know, it, it, it always happens to be. Um, you know, shit like Gorguts that that gives me some idea that I would never have found, you know, if I was just listening to Paul Desmond or something. You know, I mean, that's oversimplifying it, but yeah, for sure, you, though, yeah, it's just such a uh, ripe, fecund uh, world, uh, and there's so much great stuff. So uh, why ignore it? 
The only reason I can think of to ignore it is is that there's so much information that you could sort of end up becoming a uh, what's the word? Uh, you know, you, you know, it, it, you need to focus on one thing if you want to go as deep as you can go in that thing. That's true. Yeah, because um, no, d- d- definitely with that. That that's that's a good point. Yeah, because I found myself kind of like trying to like go to all these weird musical worlds and not really kind of diving too deep in each one. You know? This, yeah, I mean, I'd, like uh, I'm just reading this book right now where uh, uh, Nietzsche, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, like uh, says he thinks Wagner is a. a I can't remember the word he uses, but it's so good because Wagner's into theater. He's into writing. He's into philosophy. He's like a philanderer in a bunch of different things. And so he'll never achieve like his greatness <laughs> that he could in the music. And it's just so funny to read that in retrospect. Um, yeah. Because of course, you know, of course, all those diverse things are in the music too. There, it's not like there's separate worlds that you can, uh, you know, cordon off. So, no, definitely, no, it all feeds in, doesn't it? It's, uh, yeah, but but de- definitely at the moment now, I felt like I'm trying to like, catch up with a lot of uh, listening that I missed out when I was a teenager. Like, it's Me weird because, yeah, but y- you know, when you're younger, you're in, like some sort of like tunnel vision kind of thing. And yeah, I used to, I used to talk about this. <laughs> Sorry to cut you off, man. I just, uh, I, 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 you just reminded me of these stupid conversations I used to have when I was a kid with some, my best friends. Like, I didn't even want to listen to music if there wasn't a saxophone in it, you know? <laughs> like, I was bored by like Keith Jarrett Trio because I was, I'm a saxophone player. I want to listen to the saxophone, you know? I was just like so narrow minded. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, it, it's funny though, isn't it? Like, cause, um, I found that with like Radiohead, like because when I was a teenager, I just assumed like, oh yeah, Radiohead, they're like depressing, aren't they? And then, <laughs> and then listen to it, like you know, just got like OK Computer on CD, and I was like, what the fuck? How did I miss this out? It's, yeah, that, that, that I was just hearing everything as music pre Radiohead and post Radiohead. It was like, oh god, this everything makes a bit more sense now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, but but so yeah, just thinking with um. Yeah, because the question I like to ask a lot of the guests is, so when you were kind of getting serious about music and listening, so what was in your musical diet back then? Hmm. Well, it's funny because I just the other day listened to your interview with Jim Black. And, uh, you know, he was talking about sort of how how strange it is for him to hear all these people uh, who are like rock gods today who were listening to him growing up, you know, like, and it just made me think like, you know, everybody, my generation was obsessed with human feel like yeah. his band with Kurt and Chris speed and, um, you know, and, and Andrew D'Angelo, Andrew D'Angelo was a huge influence on me. Uh, because I saw him play when I was in college, he came into, uh, he came through town with Matt Wilson Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, that was in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, which is like a farm town in the middle of nowhere. I have no idea why they were there. 
But seeing Andrew play, I just had never heard anybody like, you know, I just never heard anything close to that. That one show, like hearing Andrew play when I was maybe a freshman in college really affected me. And, uh, but you know, I've also been a person who goes through strong phases. So like, I think the first time in my life where I like really got obsessed with music of any kind was when I fell in love with progressive rock, uh, when I was in middle school. And then I became one of those kids who just like sat in the basement and with their John Petrucci DVD, yeah, uh, and just played chromatic scales in every possible permutation as fast as I could. Amazing. For you know, I would I couldn't wait to get home and just shred all day long. I was just like into sweet picking and economy picking and <laughs> like and uh, it was all about just like technique and and technical facility. That I, I was obsessed with that for a long time. Oh wow! So, so was it guitar you started on, or was that kind of same happening same time as you were getting to the saxophone? I, I started on piano. I didn't have a lot of success on piano. I, I, I have a twin brother uh, who is, uh, who was like a child prodigy. He's not a musician anymore, but, um, or he's still a musician, but he doesn't do it professionally. And uh, so we both started piano simultaneously, and he just had like immediately understood it and could play anything by ear and like our teacher we had this like local teacher who was like he's a really special talent you need to get him to a better teacher and meanwhile i was just like normal so i but my brother was my only point of reference so i was convinced that i sucked so i never wanted to do that um uh, because i thought i sucked at it so um so then I picked up the guitar and uh, that was my, like, that was my thing. Um, saxophone came later and it got to a point where, um, you know, my guitar teacher was this really cool guy. His name's Jim Consbrook, um, who's a teacher in the Chicago area. And he was teaching me about like Bach lute suites and Via Lobos wow. and like, you know, Argentinian tango and like, uh, you know, he, he was teaching me about all that stuff, but then he was also teaching me about Dimebag Daryl yeah. and, you know, um, Eddie Van Halen and, uh, Randy Rhodes and like the, you know, so I would get, I actually started going to two lessons in a row with him so that we could do like one classical guitar lesson and then, the metal stuff was like for fun afterwards. Um, but eventually like he, he told me like, you got to pick one, either saxophone or guitar. And, uh, in retrospect, I'm really happy we had that conversation. Cause I know it was a hard conversation for him because basically he was like, there aren't that many opportunities that I'm aware of to have a career playing, uh, classical guitar. So, uh, I wouldn't recommend pursuing it in school. And he like sat down with me and my dad and, and we had this whole conversation. So I was like, all right, if I can't do guitar, I'll do saxophone. Um, and, 
I, I just was never going to be anything other than music. I just wasn't sure what instrument it would be. And the thing was, I wasn't that good at saxophone. Like I never, uh, I never like did like all stage or like anything like that. Um, and I grew up in Chicago where there were just like so many sick saxophone players my age. Um, so I was like, you know, I always sort of just thought I wasn't that good at saxophone. Um, Cause I, you know, you compare yourself to your peers and, um, but then I went, you know, I went to college for, for jazz saxophone. And then in college, I really fell in love with classical composing because I, I, you know, I, I, my parents live in Chicago and I was going to school like three hours South in Champaign Urbana. So I wouldn't go home during the summer. I would just stay in my apartment uh, and, and work and stuff. So over the summer, I, um, I decided to take private lessons with this guy named Reynold Tharp. And he was like a classical composer. He is a great classical composer. He introduced me to Ligeti. Uh, oh, yeah. I wrote, I wrote my first string quartet under his guidance. Um, he introduced me to do to you and, uh, had me do counterpoint exercises from Fuchs and stuff. Like he was an amazing teacher. So then I, I had, you know, at that point I had another like crisis, uh, between composing and playing. Cause I just fell in love with composing. And I actually remember, man, like I had this one, like really melodramatic moment where, uh, I like remember like crying about how, uh, how like insufficient my composing was, you know, like I, I, I wrote some piece and I just was like, this sucks. And I worked on it so hard and I'm never, and and I just realized at that moment, like that I would never be as good as I wanted to be unless I focused on that. So then through a, a turn of events, like I, um, I heard about Jim McNeely, who became like my uh, mentor when I went to masters and then afterwards, you know, um, have kept in touch with him. And he was sort of a similar type of person. I think, you know, he went to the same school, the university of Illinois in Champaign Urbana. Uh, He had a lot of different interests and it took him a long time to graduate because he was, um, you know, he was working a lot. And um, so I think, you know, his background resonated with me and then obviously his music resonated with me. And so then I decided to focus on composing and, uh, and this is a very long answer to your question. That's all right. That's good. (laughs) I'm happy with it, but it's good. (laughs) But you know, basically like, um, I decided to focus on composing, but then when I moved out to New York, I, I just realized like, nobody was going to play my music unless I played my music, you know? Mm. So that's why I still play. Um, I always feel torn between the things because like, uh, you know, there's just not that much time in the day to do everything, you know? Um, but, uh, but I found sort of this balance where, uh, you know, I write music that tends to be like, a stretch for me as a player and then I have to tackle it 
and I get better as a player, you know? So, and then, you know, through, um, you know, the opportunities I have to play, uh, you know, I'm, I'm learning more and more things about the instruments I play and I incorporate that into my music and it sort of just all feeds into this one thing. You know, I, I sort of like to have, <clears throat> I also have always uh, been into artists who do whatever the fuck they want, basically, mm. you know? Yeah, and yeah. Um, like John Zorn is an example. Steve Dude. Coleman is an example. Um, it, there's just so many examples. And so it doesn't seem strange to me to, to like jump between things. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, cause I've just seen it from afar from so many masterful people, you know? Totally. I mean, yeah, the whole thing was on as well. Like that was a big influence for me or is still is always, but yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's just one of those things. I wish I had better organizing power you know because yeah exactly you, you, know, you know all these things in the notebook that you want to try out is like oh yeah cool like this band with like this thing and then that string trio or whatever but then it's like oh god <laughs> it's like yeah, some man. weird fantasy and it's like oh god how much work does that take to do that Dude. i mean you know just, just the whole idea of making a record as well like that wipes me out for like two to four years <laughs> just so Dude. much energy and then <laughs> me too man after i made my first big band record i was like i'm never doing this again <laughs> it was like it was traumatic man i had ptsd i was like it, it was so much stress uh and uh and also a financial disaster um, oh god yeah but yeah. <laughs> but we don't need to talk about that um yeah, every time I make a record. I just re did a recording last week um of some new music with uh with my quartet. And I go through the same my my fiance was like talking me off a ledge cuz after the recording I was like I suck. This music is garbage. I I I should I need to practice more. Like I just was so dark about it afterwards. Oh man. And my fiance is going like, you do this after every recording. And then, so I decided to take a week and not listen to it. And then earlier today, I finally opened up the session and was just skimming through it. I was like, ah, oh, this sounds good. Yeah. All right. Cool. cool. You know, <laughs> yeah. like <laughs> it's always way better than I remember it, you know? So. No, uh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I definitely get that. Like listening back, just like get so excited. Like, wow, we're into a recording studio. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Look what we made. Wow. Yeah, but, man. I mean, I'm the, it's like, it's uh, everything is a dichotomy because to me, there's nothing better than making records. Like, oh, dude, it's the best in it. Yeah. You know, but it's like, it's so draining in every way. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's not a, it's, you know, like, I mean, this goes back to YouTube. Like I'm really trying to figure out as everyone is like how to continue making records, but get them listened to by more people, you know, like mm. to make them more of a viable thing. Um, you know, I, you know, like I, I was one of those people as I'm sure you were who grew up preferring to buy those records that nobody knew about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, you could probably but, see, see a load behind me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But 
but then you get older and you and you realize like you know <clears throat> to take a, an example the band i love um although i still don't know how to pronounce their name i don't think anybody does uh necrophagist um you know they only made two records and then muhammad uh the the lead singer and songwriter and guitar player now works for like uh bmw or something he's just got like a, a sales job or whatever and you realize like there's nothing good about being the the making the records that nobody's heard of yeah. It, it's like it, it might be cool to like people to like niche fans but those people aren't going to help you survive so like we've got these tools uh with the internet to connect with people around the world and i'm like trying to figure out how can i find those niche people but everywhere you know so that it can become more sustainable for me to make these epic projects because mm. you know uh, I want to keep doing it forever. So, you know. Totally. I, I guess, yeah, I guess it's all, <clears throat> it feels like a cha- it's changing now again, isn't it? I, I mean, or, or even because I guess, like, we've all got the tools now to kind of do a lot of things ourselves, like, especially in the last year or so, and be able to release things more often. But yeah, it's just, it's just making me think, like, you know, I wonder if it's kind of got to go back to the vibe it was in, like, I don't know. 40s 50s and 60s where people would just get into the studio make a record and you know all, all the old musicians i don't know they would put like three four albums out a year or something wouldn't they like you know right i mean yeah man like uh i've been really inspired this year by tim Byrne, like his productivity oh yeah and he's just yeah. putting out like he one of the best records of the year is an iPhone recording that my friend Simon German took. Oh yeah. Is that the, uh, broken shadows one? Yeah. And oh, he yeah, sent that, that to Tim killer. and then, and then Tim had Dave torn, like make it sound good basically. And he's put out so many records this year, dude. And you know, I've last year I went on tour with Ethan Iverson for a couple months and we had this conversation over the course of those two months because he was saying like there, you can put out too many records and he was using Anthony Braxton as an example or Sun Ra, Mm. you know, these people who just have hundreds and hundreds of records, Mm. it actually makes it problematic in a certain sense to understand their, uh, to understand their career because there's so much to go through. You never will. And, uh, and, in a way it can be useful to use your records as something like signposts along your journey to document, like, this is the era. This, this record is like what I was doing in 2019 and 2020. But if you're putting out eight records a year or whatever, um, you're, well, so, I mean, but I hope it's clear that I don't know, which way is better or worse. I feel like putting out a high volume of records um, creates more revenue streams, which allows you to make more records. Um, But then again, when you release new records, there'll be less of a special occasion. So you might, you know, it's, it's hard to say which is better. Yeah. Um, Cause yeah, I I find that. Yeah. I agree with that. It's like, yeah, it's like, you know, it's kind of a big climax where it gets to like a new album coming out. 
Yeah. And that feeling's great, you know, then, mm-hmm. you know, and that kind of, it's almost like a thing that, oh, here's what I've been locking myself away, working on, and this is it. Right. But, but, but then again, I always think with the whole, especially, you know, people who are more in the improvised music scene, especially here, because, you know, it's like a document of a day and how they're just like putting things out there and, you know, and just kind of. Yeah. Which I think is pretty cool as well. So you, you can kind of like, I don't know, it's almost, almost like a bit of history happening in real time and you could just see like, oh yeah, wow, that's what that person sounded like back in March. And then September yes. or something, you know, be like, oh cool, that, that, that this thing's crept into how yes. their, their aesthetic kind of thing, you know, which I, it's right. quite cool in a way. I don't know. But, but you sometimes get that with the, you hear a development, I guess. I, I guess, yeah, you sort of hear that with the older recordings you know i guess it 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 depends because like if you at least for the world of jazz excuse me if you get in the habit of um just recording everything then you there's a thing that happens when when you press the record button and you're in the studio where people uh are very cognizant of every moment and um and it's it becomes harder to find that flow where you're just not worried and you're just sort of like tapped into who you're playing with Mm. um that it's hard to find in the studio uh i guess it's probably easier for like the masters to tap into that when they're in the studio because like you said they were in the studio so often yeah yeah but uh I guess if you just get in the habit of always recording everything, then when you have those magical moments, like that Broken Shadows record, you just put it out because there yeah. it was, it, it, you know? Um, and I think a good clue is is if you feel like you had a magic moment and then you listen back to it and you're not bored, you know? Like, because... You know, we all record our gigs and stuff, and sometimes you just want to. You can't listen. You're like, oh, gotta turn this yeah. off. <laughs> but if you if you feel like, oh, that was a special gig, and then you <laughs> listen back to it, and, and you actually want to listen to it, you that's probably a good sign. Totally, yeah, yeah, definitely. But but I guess like a lot of these things get put out in retrospect as well, don't they? Like, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I've noticed a lot of Bandcamp Friday releases of like gigs that have happened like yeah. way back, <laughs> yeah. But then that, yes. that's cool though, because you get the perspective, you get that distance between it. And it's like, oh yeah, like this band yes. that doesn't exist anymore, and there's this thing that's popped up. It's like, oh cool, wow, I want to check this yes. out, see what, see what it was like live, you know, like where they were mm-hmm. really getting down and, yeah. Mm-hmm. But no, I definitely find that that's quite cool. So yes, it's making me think. Yeah, it's like it's like that thing whether to try and record everything and hope maybe there's something in there for I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. And you, you hit on, you hit on something important, uh, when you were asking the question in that, like, you know, now we have access to cheaper technology. That's really pretty good. Um, so it's, uh, it's behooves everybody to learn as much as they can about recording, capturing good sounds, the different kinds of microphones and how they all work how to treat your space for sound, um, you know, the basics of just like EQ and compression and reverb. 
if you just have a very basic understanding of those things, you have the tools to make your own records, uh, mm. which won't cost you very much money at all. Um, and so that's another interesting development, you know, um, in the world. Definitely. Yeah. Cause yeah, that seems a lot more attractive now, especially after, you know, like, yeah, the, the price of going to a studio is astronomical, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and obviously like the, the musician fees or, or, you know, the fact that you want to pay your f- friends to play the music as well is like, exactly that's one of the biggest expenses of making a record is making sure you pay the people you play with appropriately um and uh and and yeah i mean there's again there's it's a dichotomy because like i think it's becoming less and less common um no i don't think it's becoming less and less common i just think that there's such a profusion of sort of homegrown records that contain great music, but they don't sound great. Mm. You know, that's become very common. Um, And records that are like really thoughtfully recorded and, and expertly mixed. um, That's another big thing. You know, I wonder about my friends who are mix engineers, how they feel about this whole thing, because like there's no replace you can't buy yourself an apollo interface and a a neumann microphone and think that you're going to be able to uh engineer like a professional and uh so you know so there is that sort of there's the pluses and minuses because i still love to put on good headphones and get lost in just an incredible sounding record you know yeah definitely yeah yeah but yeah it's it's funny isn't it like uh like since yeah in the past few months because i've done one of those recordings you know like those isolated people doing their part from different places on the mic here and then then i went to a studio like when it's fine to do so but yeah and then just hearing the difference in the sound where the bass is recorded is like oh wow okay cool okay I got yeah. it now. That's the engineers <laughs> like they're on it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, they're some of the biggest musical geniuses I've oh, ever yeah. met. Have been engineers, man. Definitely, uh, yeah, yeah. Just the the acuity they have for listening, uh, you know, is unbelievable. Yeah, it's it's incredible, isn't it? And just yeah, and just hearing kind of how each things blend as well. It's almost like. I don't know, it's almost like being an arranger, but on a kind of another level as well, I guess, isn't it? It's a different kind of arranging for sure. Yeah. Because you're, you have to have like this great imagination to like, if you, if you ever watch like a video on YouTube or whatever, where people go through mix sessions, mm. track by track, and you'll be like, oh my God, these acoustic guitars sound like garbage alone. But then when you fold them into the mix, they just have that perfect little frequency range to where you can just like hear the string strumming and you don't hear the body of the chords because you don't need that in the mix because it's being covered by something else. Yeah. Like yeah, that yeah. kind of, a, that sort of imagination that you need to have to know, like, don't worry about like this, you know, we're doing this weird thing where we're going to put the mic right by your fingertips because we're trying to get that immediacy and that whatever 
that's just a whole different kind of musical imagination. And it is arranging. Uh, it's just uh, instead of sheet music, they use Hertz. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? exactly. Yeah, yeah. But it's amazing. Yeah. Like, you know, I've been in situations with like some engineers. They're just like, try some stuff out. Like that, oh, man. you're really hearing things. So, like, I got a friend who's a great engineer. I remember he had like a in the studio. There was just like a piano board, like with a string still on, and then he just put uh, put a bunch of speakers in a room and just like put it in front of that, so it just excites all the harmonics and the strings and see. Whoa! Just to try that vibe. That's out. so. There's yeah. this guy. I'm sure. I'm sure you've heard of him, Pete Rendy. He's a great piano player, but he's also oh, a, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, he was like, you know, involved with Nora Jones early in her when she was blowing up and he makes tons of records and does mastering and stuff. This dude built a plate reverb that's so big. It takes up a whole room in his apartment Yeah, that he, that, that he uses to send his mixes through this, this real plate reverb. I mean, wow. like that kind of musician or you know who's another one is cliff martinez this guy who he lives out in california he he used to be he was the drummer for red hot chili peppers for their first oh record. yeah 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 I remember. It was uh, the first two records right yeah and he right, does right. uh and he does uh film scores he's one of my favorite film composers he, he's like a modern day harry parch he builds instruments you know oh wow um and just and he might build a whole apparatus that looks like a piece of modern art and it's just for one sound, you know, and then he puts the mic all around it to try and find different cool sweet spots and stuff. It's, it's so cool. Yeah. Oh man. That's, that's funny to think that someone who's like that deep into it was in the red hot chili peppers. (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs) Oh, but I'm still having my mind blown by that. The guy who was, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now that you say that, I recognize the name. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I used to love those records. The like the first four Chili Peppers ones. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I think maybe, maybe that thing is because like no one else I was in school with when I was in high school just like knew about those first four albums. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. To seek them out, so <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> mainly for my like cool seeking points. I was trying to get that, but no one <laughs> found it cool. But um, yeah. So I was just thinking um about. So I guess the two main projects you have happening, uh, Big Heart Machine and the Quartet. So that's is the Quartet called Little? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then cool, and and that's the name of the first album that you bought out with the Quartet, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. So so which came first? Was it the Quartet or the big band? Or the- they both sort of came simultaneously. The rhythm sections that I have tended to work with over the years um, have been the same people in little and in big heart machine. Uh, and, and like with everybody else, it just sort of came down to who I was friends with and, uh, and playing sessions with. And so for, you know, so Ollie Hervonen, the guitar player is, you know, one of my best friends and, and his sound and the way he, you know, he's very similar to, what's happening with you and I. And that when I met Ollie, we immediately were like, he's from Helsinki and I'm from Chicago, but we had the same points of reference for everything. You know, we sort of had very similar 
childhoods and developments. And so I knew that he just got where I was coming from. Cool. Yeah. Uh, And then, you know, as I got to know him, his sound and his approach to the guitar sort of just incidentally became a fundamental part of the music I write. And, uh, and the same is true for all the other people I put with Marty Kenny bass player, um, a variety of different drummers, Nathan Elman Bell, uh, Jay Sawyer, Stephen Kramer. Um, and then, uh, yeah. So, so the, the rhythm sections, I sort of think of the reason the names are sort of big heart machine and little is because that's how I think about them. They're, they're just two iterations of, of my musical world. And one of them's big and one of them's small, you know? Cool. So, um, so, but the big heart machine record came first. Uh, cause I knew I had to get that one done. Uh, because the music I was, I had done all the music sort of simultaneously for those two records but I just sort of knew that if I didn't take the plunge and make that big heart machine record while the music was fresh and we had a, you know, we had a string of different gigs over the course of a couple of years to where people had gotten familiar with the music. And I was like, if I don't do this now, it might never get done. So, uh, so I did that one first, but. Oh, amazing. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And now I'm just sort of hoping my, my, my goal with everything I do is just like to keep those things going. I, I, I really, I believe in the longevity of bands. I think that is sort of behind a lot of the music that I like. Um, Mm. as a fan, I like going on journeys with bands. I like seeing how they grow and develop and change and stuff. So in my dreams, big heart machine is still going in 20 years and 30 years, you know? And, uh, and so I'm sort of orienting the rest of my career around how can I make that happen? You know? Cool. Yeah. Cause I remember, yeah. Cause I remember hearing about that band like a good few years ago. Cause, uh, oh, I don't hear about it. Cause I'm, uh, cause I know Simon German. Oh, you know Simon? So, yeah. Yeah. So, so when he was in London, I took an electric bass lesson with him. It was like, Oh, cool! Yeah, he's Simon like one of my is... favorites. Yeah, he's insane uh, on the bass. He's the he's the best bass and guitar, and as a person, you couldn't uh, you'd be hard pressed to find more of a gentleman. I really love Simon. Yeah, and he played in early iterations of Big Heart Machine, but it just like never, you know how it is. It never yeah, worked yeah. out to get him on a record, but uh, maybe one day it will. Um, yeah. And he also he also played with Little early on too. Oh, um, right, cool. Yeah, Simon and we also used to practice together a lot. Me and Simon, uh, I'd go over to his apartment when he lived in Queens, and uh, and just you know like play over drones or practice tunes or rhythmic things. Like we just it was one of those things. What are you working on? What are you working on? You know. So oh, amazing, um, yeah. Yeah, and 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 it's been like that too with Ollie and and Marty and various people where we just sort of like became a de facto band because we just shed together a lot, played a lot of ses- sessions, and uh, so you know. Ah, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, but no, I mean those guys are amazing sound, especially like Ollie, like hearing the whole the jag thing uh, or the jazz master. 
I can never tell the difference. The jazz master. Yeah. Ollie's, Ollie's just a genius. Uh, You know, he's like so good at guitar. And I, I almost feel like I'm encouraged to write complicated shit because he just eats it for breakfast. I've, I've never written anything that was at all challenging for him. And I always think it's going to be crazy. And then I, he gets to it and it's no problem. Amazing. So, you know, um, but, uh, but yeah, so sometimes I find myself being like, all right, I got to chill out. Cause I'm just writing this crazily complicated stuff. And, uh, and you know, the, you know, there is no limit, I think, to what these dudes can can do. So amazing, yeah. But but would you, yeah? Because in developing those bands, were you using the same compositions for both, or was it kind of very different set of rules with both groups? No, yeah, I was using the same compositions. Uh, two of like my most popular big band charts are one's called Jelly Cat. And one's called Don't Analyze. And both of those are just arrangements of small band tunes um, that I used to play quartet, quintet. And then I just thought they were both such good tunes that they would work well um, with with the big band. Um, but now that I think about it, that was years ago now. And I, I haven't arranged something for the quartet for big band since. Um, and I, it's just interesting. I don't know why. Um, I think that like the, you know, they've both like taken on their own personalities maybe. So, uh, mm. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. But, uh, but I guess, uh, yeah, but, but in terms of having a big band, yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty full on is amazing. But in terms of like the composition side of that, would were you kind of scoring things uh like for a big band like straight onto the chart kind of thing or were you kind of taking the tune and then expanding it from there because i guess there's a lot of colors being explored with some of those pieces like mm. yeah i never i never basically never i'm trying to think of an example that would that would um contradict what i'm about to say but i don't think there is i don't think i've ever written anything straight into the score uh i've known people who who are really good working that way and i i like get jealous because it's like it seems so much quicker you know like to just have like a fully fledged idea and then just sort of like write it down um uh like i used to live with this guy named scott ninmer who's a really great arranger and I remember like he would take like two lines maybe of manuscript notes and then be ready to write the whole thing in a big oh, band wow. chart. Um, and then there's like all these old school guys who I really look up to who would just write the parts. They wouldn't even write a score. Um, oh, wow. They would, you know, back when people were handwriting, um, it was pretty common for there not even to be a score which is why if people lost their parts, it was so devastating because um, people were in such a rush to write, um, to have enough material, especially if you're like in a territory band or like, or a band that uh, is playing a lot of 
like sort of longer sets or or multiple nights in a row where you need a lot of material they'd just be so desperate they'd be writing you know the first alto part and then the second alto part and then the tenor one part and they'd oh, just wow. be able to do that uh it's unbelievable to me because i tend to be the opposite of that i i write a lot of i take a lot of notes many many pages of manuscript paper trying to figure out like uh what the piece is going to be i call that pre-composition and i actually make all my students do that um because i just sort of feel fairly certain that um you shouldn't stop searching for ideas when you get a good idea yeah you should just sort of like take note of that idea but then also see where it might lead because um your your first idea may not be your best idea it may be your best idea and then in that case it doesn't hurt to continue to explore and if you end up throwing away all this material uh and going back to your first idea you didn't lose anything but if you if you just have a good idea and then start you know start writing um you could be missing out on even better ideas you know so I usually tend to, to for myself and for my students, I'm like, exhaust every possible idea. Once you've gotten to the point where you can't think up another thing, you know, then you start writing. Um, and then the process of writing becomes really quick and easy because you've got all these ideas laid out and you can just sort of like, it's like a puzzle. Okay, maybe I'll take this idea and put it first and then... And then I, oh, I see how it could turn into a form and, uh, oh, this might be something that Charlotte Greve would love to blow over because, you know, you know, you start to like sort of put it all together based on the people and the, and what material you have in front of you. Um, it, the composing becomes a process of choice. You're just choosing the ideas that you want to use rather than a process of conjuring up music from nowhere, which to me is like intimidating and relies too much on chance. And some, you know, uh, especially when you become, when you get in situations where you have deadlines and commissions and stuff, you can't rely on chance, you know? No, exactly. Yeah. So. Cause I mean, yeah, it's not until like in the last few years I've been kind of trying to do that thing of like preparing something first and then expanding on it. Yeah, it's like I don't know. Just mind you being yeah, because in college, like I don't know, because it was on a on to on one of jazz course. So was, yeah, the, yeah, there's no like formal composing kind of thing. No one ever said like jot these ideas down that way, you know. But it's funny because I was like looking through because I got into buying those you know those like books that Zorn put out uh, Arcana. Oh yeah, the yeah, essay ones. Yeah, but but just like so much stuff in that where they like a lot of the musicians mention that and it's like oh yeah God that totally makes sense and then hearing hmm. like Hollenbeck's got a great one uh, where he does uh, dissects like one of the Claudia Quintet scores. Oh, in one of the Arcana books. Yeah, yeah. 
It's like oh, um, I, I haven't I haven't read that, but but you know, like Hollenbeck is like sort of the reference point for where I got this sort of outlook on things. Like, uh, okay, yeah, because you know, his whole his whole idea is that if you if you he's he's very rigorous about like the sort of ethics of composing and you know this this shit just never left me hearing him talk i i, I went to a master class somewhere where he talked about this and he was like when you're writing you're alone in a room and your decision making is you're the only person who's privy to your decision making and so it's a perfect chance to exercise your your ethics because if you have an idea and you you know there's any number of things like if you have an idea and you know that it sounds like another thing that you've already heard you could just say to yourself ah nobody'll notice and sort of take the expedient route mm-hmm. and just you know uh just hope that nobody notices that you sort of did some light plagiarism, you know, yeah, yeah, or, or, you know, any number of things, you know, so his whole thing is like approaching the process with creativity and not worrying so much about how the final product sounds, but more letting the final product be a representation of the creative process, you know? Um, so, uh, and you know, more often than not, it's going to sound great. Uh, it'll just sound different. It'll be less familiar sounding, but, uh, so, so yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's like had a big influence on me. Like, uh, I, I, I have a really hard time accepting things I've written that I know are, not original you know i i i just have to throw those things out because uh you know it's going to be different from person to person i don't think there's anything wrong with uh rehashing old ideas if that's meaningful to you in that moment but for me it's like it's just hard i don't it Mm. doesn't excite me it makes me it makes me sort of feel like what's even the point yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know like this this i've heard this before uh and unfortunately you know like human beings we're not you know we're how do i phrase this if you just are going to rely on your ears or your what you play to become the music that you write it's probably not going to be original because we all Mm. we have is is a repository of the things we've heard and maybe that's not your goal as a composer to be original and that's cool then that's you're dealing with sort of a different set of parameters but i think my goal is to like to be for a variety of reasons like to honor the the people who have the musicians who have like really impacted my life and and influenced me and sort of given me this 
like profound creativity that like, you know, that permeates everything in my life. I want to sort of continue that tradition, you know, which is doing something different, you know, and it's a lot harder than it sounds to do something different, you know, um, that's for sure, man. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's like, uh, I wonder with, um, yeah, I don't know, just hearing the evolution of music is kind of like, it's sped up towards the end of the 20th century. And that is like, yeah, yeah the way I, I things also, are explored, I, I find it crazy. It's like how, <laughs> yeah, like, definitely I, I don't know hit. if things are slowing down or whether it's like they're speeding up towards another weird way of like it's branching off in all these different ways, you know? Yeah. Who can say, man? Who knows? I mean, uh, another person who had a big Im- influence on me in this regard is Jacob Garchik, the trombone player. Um, he put out a record this year called Clear Line. And this record has actually all of his records have no rhythm section. Uh, Jacob oh, wow. Garchik. Um, and a big part of the reason in making that choice is because it for it's going to force you as a composer to do to make different choices you know and and i had this one interesting conversation with jacob last year where he was talking about how there's a whole strain in music um of people who make their decisions rather than from a standpoint of incorporating it's from a standpoint of um uh disavowing it's a it's an anti strain you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do this. Rather than saying, I want to do that. I want to do something, you know, rather than right. saying to yourself, I want to have a band that's like Snarky Puppy, yeah. you know, <laughs> or if, as an example, you could say, I'm not going to have rhythm section. I'm never going to have the, doin-. like, imagine writing a piece of music and you say, I'm never going to have any of the instruments play in the staff, they all have to play either above or below in ledger wow. lines. That limitation right there is enough that's going to force you to write something that is, whether or not it turns out sounding pleasant, it will at least be a creative process. And uh, to me, that's more desirable because, you know, one out of every 100 of those might be something really great. Um, and I, I'd rather, I'd rather take those odds, you know? Totally. Yeah. So. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's that system as well. Like, uh, yeah. Cause, cause I'm kind of quite into that mathsy thing as well of how things link up and just seeing like the natural phenomenon within music, I think is amazing. Yeah. yeah but, 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 but totally. it's like, coming back to that Hollenbeck essay, like there's one thing, yeah, you mentioned kind of like having this system to finish this piece Oh, no, no, to compose the piece, I mean. But then then there's certain sentences. It says, like, yeah, from bar 83 to 101, I, I finished this by following my ear. I just thought it was, like, amazing. It's kind yeah. of... Well, it's like you know, you can't, you can't be fascistic, you know? Like, yeah. you, you, set, you set these parameters to, to guide you, but you don't, follow, you don't have to follow them fascistically. That's, that's not going to... You know, you, you also, the reason that, you know, we, today we have max MSP, we can set any 
set of parameters and instruct a computer to follow them through coldly. But the reason there is the artist is to have that, to have that element of taste, you know? So, um, so, you know, it's not that Hollenbeck is, is, uh, is, he's allowed to break his own rules because he, yeah, definitely. But but I I love those moments where it's like, yeah, it's it's just like a kind of a human against the machine almost. And then kind of, yeah. yeah. And how how to make those things work. You're a filter to, yeah, you're a filter, you know? Definitely. You take take this, I mean, the, like, the mystical element of music is that is what you, you don't have any way of verbalizing. You don't, there is no, um, there's no way to, to codify it, but by giving yourself a set of limitations to adhere to, you're forcing yourself to make creative solutions. You get what I'm saying? So like, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's finding the right balance of, of, uh, of those things. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, so it's all kind of exciting. Just music making. I, I love it. Just those pro, I mean, so many different me processes, you know, is, is me too, incredible. man. Me too. Me too. And, you- and at the end of the day, like it's, it's, uh, you know, like what I always say is doing something is better than doing nothing. There's just, everybody has the ability to create and everybody has their own, uh, personal ethic and, and shit. Like, I don't think that the way I do things is better or correct or anything. I just think that we should all be adding to the, to the amount of beauty in the world because like, that's that's really what what it's all about you know is 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 just sort of like we're like when you really step back and think about why why create music you know like it's why have we always done this why why is it such an important fundamental part of humanity you know it's I don't know, but I mean, it's what it, I I can only know what it's done for me. And mm. it's like, it's, it's adding value to your life by making you learn more about that unnameable, uh, mystical thing that, that makes life worthwhile, you know, that it's like, it's learning more about yourself, learning more about your fellow man connecting having moments where you're not uh (laughs) paralyzed by this like uh apocalyptic fear you know like yeah yeah (laughs) it's it it just adds it it adds depth to the world and it's all good you know um the one thing i found is that the older you get the more lenient you become like when, when I'm sure you were like this too. Like when I was a kid, I would always be like, this record sucks. This yeah. record is bullshit. <laughs> now I'm like, damn, they made a record this year. That's really impressive. You know, I want to check it out and see what they're dealing with, you know? And yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Is, so 
Yeah, oh man. But dude, I think I think that's a good place to uh to call it, man. Yeah. But thanks so much cool, for doing dude. doing it, man. And uh yeah, legend. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening to this month's episode with Brian Crock. And obviously a massive thank you to Brian for joining me on the show this time. Yeah, so if you're enjoying the show, please don't forget uh, there's a Patreon. Brian also has a Patreon. And I will see you next time. Bye.